Hi, everyone. Thanks for checking out the Thrive Podcast. We are the Young Adult Ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Wednesdays at 730 in our Family Life Center. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd love for you to post it to your Instagram story and tag us at NBC Thrive on Instagram. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. Well, thank you guys for coming. Hi. Hi. Um, appreciate you all coming tonight. We have a couple announcements, just so you know. If it's up there, we have our Halloween party next week. Halloween costume party, whatever it is. Yeah, basically. So if you come up to that, that would be really fun. We're going to have the events and prizes and games. Um, so come to that. Um, we appreciate you guys coming tonight. Uh, we'll give the lesson first, then Ethan is going to come and close us out in worship, and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, but before we do any of that, let's pray. Um, dear Lord, we're just so thankful that we have the opportunity to be here with each other. We're thankful that we have the opportunity to pray and worship and read and listen and hear what your Spirit has to tell us. We just pray that we'd learn something tonight, God, from this really confusing, odd book that uh, sometimes is exactly what we need to hear as we're just in these seasons of life. We just pray that you'd bless your word tonight as it's being read and have it be applied to the people who are in this room. In your son's name, amen. So if you have your Bible, we are going to be in Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 4. Um, excuse the college professor look, apparently uh, very mild-mannered on that, so we'll go through here. Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 4. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So these parables are kind of arcane, so we're going to go through them one by one. So the first one we're going to do is where he says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you'll find it after many days. And uh, for the longest time, I had no idea what that means, and I'm still sure I don't have any idea what it means, but I can tell you what other translations say, and maybe that'll help. In the NIV... It's translated, cast your bread, or I'm sorry, send, ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. And so what we get here is Solomon's kind of saying this more, um, like this goodness ideal of um, the, where these liberal and Jewish commentaries are reading this more with like a generous sense, where like if you give something to someone without expecting anything in return, it'll come back to you. Um, so I always used to think like, so if I go duck feeding and I have bread, and I cast it upon the water, and I go back two months later, is a duck going to bring me more bread? Like, I never understood this passage. So reading it in this way, it kind of makes more sense that um, we're supposed to be generous with other people. Cast your bread upon the waters, and you will find it after many days. That one makes more sense. The next proverb that he has here, he says, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. So again, the meaning isn't perfectly clear for this, but what we, kind of the best way that we look at this is that what goes around comes around. Um, like if you help someone when, when you're there in trouble, they'll help you when you're in trouble, that sort of thing. And so it's kind of like Solomon's like, oh, what did I forget? What did I forget? Oh, write that down, write that down. Oh, what did I forget? What I, you know, and so we're kind of summing up in uh, Ecclesiastes 11 here. Um, and then as a side note, this is just kind of a good biblical interpretation note. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean there's a right answer that, you know, this is it, you know, this is the right one. Um, just because one of these is right doesn't mean the other one isn't right. It's, it's possible these are vague for a reason, you know, that they have that. 
Um, and so then the next one, one of my favorites, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Gosh, I just love that passage. To me, it's the most obvious thing in the world. Solomon's like, oh my gosh, I'm the wisest man on earth, and I have realized something crazy. When it looks like it's about to rain, hear me out, it rains. He's like, and watch. You know, you've always heard in the philosophy classes, well, if a tree falls in the forest, no one's to hear it, does it make a sound? Solomon's like, I can do you one better. What if that tree falls? It'll stay there. No little elves are going to pick it up and move it around. I love that passage. And so partial, you know, for a long time, I mean, I just love it. But I was like, why did he think that that was like a really good thing, you know, in, in your Bible that's there? Why does he put that? I mean, I think what he's talking about is he's, he's talking about the natural, the ordered element of creation. And what I mean by that is like um, there are a lot of laws in nature that we really hold to and we're thankful for them. Could you imagine if you went to bed, you go to bed and you wake up the next morning and you're hitting your ceiling fan because gravity all of a sudden was turned off. And, oh, and by the way, your house is floating away too, right? That wouldn't be good, you know, if gravity all of a sudden forgot to work one day. No, we have ordered natural rules where gravity might be this um, differential thing, but for where we're at and according to the sun and according to the center of the Milky Way and all that, our gravitational rate stays constant here. And so that's just one example of a natural law that we really appreciate that God has ordained and ordered. And so when Solomon says this as groundbreaking and as earth-shattering as it may be, I think what he's kind of talking about here is the fact that we are thankful for the natural, the order, the, the elements of creation that are like that. Um, and so those physical laws evince design and the order in those in the structure. Then finally, for these Proverbs in verse 4, he says, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So, I have read Ecclesiastes probably since I was 8 years old or something. And um, I never read that passage actually until I was about 12. And the reason I know that is because my dad in the summer would make me mow the lawn. I would have to always mow. Every week I would mow. And our neighbor was older, and so I would mow for her as well. And um, it was one of those things where my dad was always like, yeah, you can quit the neighbors if you want to, which I did, but I still had to mow our lawn. So when I was out there, once I got done, well, I might as well mow her lawn and make a couple extra bucks anyway. So, but the thing is that I had to mow the lawn every week in the summer, sometimes like twice a week in the spring, every week in the summer like clockwork, except for one thing, if it would rain. Because if it would rain, all of a sudden, oh, the grass is wet, Dad. Sorry, can't thing. Well, I really wanted to get out there and do it, but it was raining. And so it would be so funny, not really, but for me it's funny now, because I would look in the sky and, like, see if it was the slightest bit overcast. I would see if it might rain. I would see what the clouds were looking like. I would look on my, you know, I think I had a computer, look online, weather in, you know, Canton, Ohio. What's the weather going to be like? And be like, well, sorry, Dad, I really wanted to do it. I'm sorry to machete your way in the house, but supposed to rain, you know, that sucks. And um, then I read this passage, and I remember I was about 12, and I was like, oh. So Solomon's saying, if I constantly look up at the sky, 
in order to get my job done, it's never going to get done, because that's honestly what would happen. Because I would think to myself, yay, I saved myself from another day of mowing, but then I would dread it for the rest of the time. Because, oh, I've still got to mow. My dad's going to be on me for mowing. Then I wake up in the morning and, oh, gosh, I'm probably going to have to mow today. What, don't want to do that. Solomon's saying, just get it done. Just do it. You know, just go out and get, get it done. Don't look up at the sky and think, oh, gosh, it might rain. Probably shouldn't. You know, don't observe the wind before you throw seed. And that applies to so many areas of our life. But what's funny is that once I started applying that in my life as a kid, I noticed it never actually rained on me when I was going out mowing. I think there was one time it was sprinkling as I was getting done. But it never happened where I got out and all of a sudden it's now downpouring when I'm like, dang, should have stayed inside. Um, I always had more time than I thought I did. So that's just kind of funny to me that I'm reading this now and I was like, oh gosh, what a horrible time. But I think what Solomon's saying there is if you focus on the negative, you're never going to do what needs to be done. You know, it's like, to me, that's one of those things where it's like, it's easier to just get it, do it. It'll be easier for you when you do finally have it. The second portion is Ecclesiastes 11, 5 through 10, and we'll go through this. Okay. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Um, Solomon's point in that is that there are things that we see all the time and that we don't understand. So we read that in verses 5 where he says, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes into the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. And without getting too, you know, like, let's go through, you know, reproduction, um, you can, like the science right now is at a spot where, like, if you went up to a philosophy person or a biologist and said, what is consciousness? What is life? What is the, I mean, right, we're still dealing with these questions thousands of years later where I don't think a philosopher would be able to tell you, well, son, it's really easy, everybody knows, Right. Like, what makes us different from somebody else or from animals, right? This is still a hugely debated problem. And so Solomon is saying, listen, you don't know. You think you do. You think you have this idea, maybe, but most of the time you just don't know. It's like when people use that classic example, like when I sit on this chair, I will not inspect the structure of that chair. I'm not going to make sure that there's screws in there. I'm not going to make sure there's nails. I'm not going to make sure it's doing its job. I'm just going to sit on it. Now, I don't know anything about this chair, right? This could be a prank, a decoy. It could be on its last leg. But I'm going to sit here, right? It works. Right? I don't know anything about how that chair operates, how it works, how it's formed, if it's going to work or if it's not. But I trust it anyway, right? And we work through life the whole way. I guarantee when you leave tonight, you're going to be like, oh, no asteroid. I think I'm good. You know, leave. What are the chances? It could happen, right? But you just aren't going to think about that. And so I think what Solomon means is, like, you don't know how our world operates. You don't know every eventuality. You don't know every outcome. And yet, right, it still works. Yet it still happens. Yet I can sit on this chair and 99,000 times out of 100,000, I'm not going to, you know, fall on my face. So what I see him kind of saying there is that 
just because you don't know how something operates doesn't mean that it's not going to operate the way that it ought. You know, and you could say, you know, why is my life so hard? Why don't I have any friends? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why does God do these things when I think he should be doing these things? But Solomon is saying that just because we don't understand, just because something's hard to understand, right? Well, I don't know how this happens. I don't know how this happens. Well, then God can't be in control. I don't know how this happens. I don't know how this happens. Well, then God can't do it. Just because you don't understand what you think you know doesn't mean that, you, uh, that God doesn't know it, right? God knows it. The secret things belong to the Lord, it says in Deuteronomy. And so we see that in that passage there. In verses 6, he says, In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. And um, how many of you have read Things Fall Apart? It's like this pretty, wow, all of you, wow, that's incredible. Just kidding. Nice, okay. So um, <clears throat> you probably wouldn't read it anyway. It was some, I think it's a Nobel winner for for literature, but it was written by this guy named uh, Chinua Achibe, and what happened is it was this book about this African tribe who was being enculturated with, you know, these settlers, these colonists who were coming over to Africa. Anyway, that's not important. What I remember very clearly from the story is that the main character's name was Okonkwo, and Okonkwo's dad, I think it was, was not a hard worker at all, very lazy, and Okonkwo didn't like his dad for that reason, because Okonkwo was very diligent. So at the beginning of the harvest season, you guys are like, what the heck is he talking about? At the beginning of the harvest season, they all planted their yams. I didn't even know you could grow yams, okay? They all planted their yams. Then all of a sudden, a freak frost came, bam, killed all the yams. Now, Conquo's father was lazy, so he didn't plant the yams because he didn't do it when he should have. And then the frost comes and kills all the yams, and Okonkwo's father's like, yeah, it's because I'm an agricultural genius. I knew that it was going to frost, and Okonkwo gets so frustrated because he knows that's not the case. It's almost a weird, like, side plot in the book anyway, but it to me was, yeah, I could get being frustrated, right? You know that it's not this, but this person's going around like they're this genius, but life's random, right? These guys can be really diligent. They can plant their yams, apparently, at the, apparently, at the appropriate time. And then this guy doesn't, and then his is the yams that survive, right? Solomon's saying there is a randomness inherent to life, right? Throw your seed in the morning like you're supposed to, and then throw it at night. Because who's to say which one's going to work, whether this one or that one? Right? I mean, I saw snow on the ground, and it's supposed to be 70 on Saturday, right? Well, if I started, you know... If I only wore winter coats from now on, that would be pretty hard for me because life just sometimes changes. It's random, so that's okay. Solomon says, you know, that's a perspective of, of the randomness in life. Prepare for every eventuality. And so we realize that we want to blame God with these damaging moments. Um, and when we want to say, you know, I think what Solomon's actual point kind of behind here is stop blaming God for when things don't go well. Right? That's just the nature of life. Sometimes you don't, you're in a job you hate. Sometimes you're in a college career you don't know if you like. Sometimes you're doing this or that that you're, like, you're kind of frustrated in. And I think what Solomon is saying here is you look up to heaven because you're frustrated with God. And I heard it this way, a preacher who said, um, when you pray for God for something but don't do anything about it, it's like a farmer who hasn't planted anything and then sits and prays for a full harvest. Right? You have to do something. You have to, you know, realize that God's not going to do, I mean, he's not a genie, right? He, he's up in heaven and he blesses what you do, but it's not like he's just going to do everything that you don't want to do. 
And so what I think Solomon is meaning by that is when we look up to heaven and we're frustrated with God, right, because we did everything right. We were raised in church. I didn't cuss. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't go out and party. All these other people, blah, 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 were doing this crap. I didn't, you know. Even if you just got saved, it's way easier to fall into that mentality. Gosh, these Christians are crazier than the non-Christians. You know, you, know, you can do whatever you want. And then when something bad happens, you're frustrated because I did this right. I did it what I was supposed to, and I did everything according to the rules. You know, and you're like the older brother in the parable where you're like, you know, I never even had a fattened calf. I never asked for a fattened calf to celebrate with my friends. You know, why, God? Why? And Solomon's saying it's not a why God issue. It's just that's how life is sometimes. Right? And now we know because of the Christianity and Jesus on earth that all that meaninglessness is, is redeemed, is restored, where God is actually working through that. But that doesn't mean that life isn't meaningless anymore. It doesn't feel meaningless. It still does. So Solomon's like, prepare for every eventuality. Just do what you need to do. Because sometimes it's just not God's fault that, you know, the winter came and froze the yams. Sometimes that's just the way the life is. Right? You guys like that yam example, huh? So, anyway. So then verse 7, he says, light is sweet, and it is pleasant for eyes, for the eyes to see the sun. Um, I love that verse. Every time, you're like, there's no point here. No, there's not. Every time I see a sunset or a sunrise or something, I think of this verse. I say that, you know, light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Um, in my mind, it's just so, you know, when I see a sunset or sunrise or, you know, something with light that I really like, or if it shines through glass and you get that kaleidoscope you know, effect on the ground. I just love that. Um, and I think the Bible has perhaps, it could be making a physiological point about the importance of sunrise, you know, about how there's a seasonal affective disorder which goes around and affects, I think, 6% of the population or something where if you don't actually see the sun, you're more depressed. Then there's something, uh, I did some research, and then there's some broader sense of depression called seasonal malaise where as the days get shorter, then there are millions more Americans who actually suffer from some milder form of depression, you know, as you don't see the sun. So there could be a physiological point where Solomon is saying that, you know, it's good for the sun to be shining on you, know, it's good for you to see the sun. It could be a spiritual point where it's just good to see something that God's made, but hey, we're just going to fight through that. Then finally in verses 8 through 10, they're kind of together, so we're going to read them again. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Um, I love those passages, right? They're really good. But it's important for us to remember that what we see is not what we get as Christians. You know, just, and Solomon is way big on what we see in Ecclesiastes. And you're reading stuff and you're like, this isn't biblical, right? It's because he is talking exactly about how life appears, how life feels. And most of the Bible doesn't say, uh, you know, just kind of live the life you the way you want to, right? And Solomon right here is like, yeah, just kind of live the life you, the way you want to. Whatever you see, do it. Whatever you kind of feel like doing, do it. He, he adds this important caveat, but realize that God is going to bring you into judgment for all these things that you're doing, right? So you don't normally get that from the Bible. And so what's important for us is to remember that Solomon is, is talking about how it feels, how it appears on our, on our life now. And uh, the whole point of Ecclesiastes is that just because life feels this way doesn't mean it is. Um, it just feels like it's worthless. It doesn't mean it's worthless. Um, and I was going to have that as a point. You know, I was going to have the point. Um, I don't know if I have it here. Nope. 
I don't? Okay, good. It was, I wasn't going to be able to do it anyway, so that's fine. Um, but we have that where it's like, just because it feels this way doesn't mean it is. It was kind of going to be one of the bigger points of Ecclesiastes where we see that there. Um, remove vexation from your heart, put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life or vanity. You know, you don't, that's not really a steadfast, steadfast point there. But what we get is this is the way Solomon feels about life. So to finish, we are going to read the entirety of Ecclesiastes 12. And if you see your Bible here, this entire passage is a, an allegory for life shutting down. And I think it's beautiful. And there's really nothing to describe. So I'm just going to read through that. And I'm going to go straight through there. And then this is kind of the appendix to Ecclesiastes where the author just kind of talks about what Ecclesiastes is and why it's written. So sit back. Don't read it. I'm going to read it out loud. Close your eyes or whatever. I just, this is a perfect passage. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of songs are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying, and arranging many proverbs with great prayer. The, prof, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly, uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that's good, that uh, chapter. Solomon's talking about how it feels like, right? There's going to be a time where life ends. And you may be in a season right now where you're like, gosh, it feels exactly like, you know, I'm not dying, but it feels like I am a little bit. You know, I feel way too busy, way too stressed. It just feels like everything's falling apart. Um, and I think what where Solomon is saying here is that, you know, it feels real, but it's not going to matter what it feels like, right? It's not going to matter because at the end, God exists, and at the end, he's going to call all things into account. And when he finishes this book, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear him and recognize that no matter what it feels like, we're to love a God who gave himself for us. Um, and to finish this whole series out, I am... Um, when the Ukraine thing just, you know, happened with Russia, it had, do you remember it was like Good Friday, like pretty soon after that? And I read this phenomenal article in the Washington Post. Well, I shouldn't say that, but somewhere where I read it. And it was a super good article, and it talked about kind of the things we're going to talk about. And so I'm just going to read it here where this guy had, had written it out here. He starts out with talking about um, Night with the Elie Wiesel book where he talks. Now, this is a true story. 
He says, in night, Elie Wiesel describes the execution by hanging of two Jewish men and a boy, conducted before the entire camp at Auschwitz. The men died quickly, Wiesel wrote, but the death struggle of the boy lasted half an hour. Where is God? Where is he? A man behind me asked. As the boy, after a long time, was still in agony on the rope, I heard the man cry again, where is God now? And I heard a voice within me answer, here he is. He is hanging here on this gallows. And the author talks about the Ukraine deal with what is going on. And he says, for many, I suspect, this mass of suffering overshadowed their Passover or Easter celebrations. We consume the media reports of the terrible events. We long for unlikely justice. But none of this touches the human need for explanation amid tragedy. Where is God? The boy on the gallows is not a Christian story, but it has Christian resonance. It is not only that God is on the side of the victim, though he surely is, it is that the founder of this faith was also the victim of a slow execution. And if God was somehow uniquely present in this person, it was God who subjected himself to a full dose of human malice. The cross measured the depth of the divine descent, the faithless friends, the bloody sweat, the thorny crown, the nails, the beam, the cry of thirst, the call upon a vanished God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the strangest portion of an unlikely story, the God-forsaken Christ, the God-forsaken God. The Christian faith does not set out a philosophy explaining the problem of evil. It responds instead with a person. It answers an experience of pain with an experience of pain. It offers the fellowship of suffering. In the process, it gives permission for grief, outrage, even despair. Yet it also raises the prospect of a dramatic reversal, a hope on the far side of anguish, a homecoming on the far side of death, an assurance that the violent will not inherit the earth. We see the same struggles not only in world historic events, but also in the course of nearly every life, in the death of a child from a lingering disease, in a cruel cancer diagnosis, in the self-crucifixion of depression. Every minute is someone's last minute. Even the bravest and loveliest decay to dust. There are moral responses to this tragic state of affairs, to live in smug indifference or to feed endlessly on our own bitterness. Yet there are moral reactions. We can live in revolt against a cruel and meaningless world, adopting the existentialist hopeless heroism and embracing goodness and justice in a doomed enterprise. Or we can live in the hope that there is a deeper meaning, even if we do not fully comprehend it. And I remember the first time I read that, and I thought, yeah, that's exactly it. Right? We don't have a God who says, gosh, life sucks for you, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the reason it is is this and this and this, and here's a pie chart and here's a bar graph, right? God doesn't see you struggling. God doesn't see you suffering and then say to himself, oh, wow, that sucks. Wish there was something I could do. Trust me, it's part of my plan, right? What we have is we have a God who cared about us so much that he came down to earth and suffered through the same things that we feel with. And so you're struggling with life. You know, you read Ecclesiastes and you're like, yeah, life feels meaningless. Life feels like it doesn't have a purpose, like it doesn't have a hope, like it doesn't have a reason. And then you realize that God felt the same way. How do I know that? Because he sent Jesus Christ, his son, and Jesus felt the same way. Could you not watch with me for one hour, right? We had that where he was talking to his friends. We have a Jesus who gets tired and a Jesus who gets thirsty and a Jesus who wonders where God's at and a Jesus who wonders where his friends are at. And we have a Jesus who suffers the same things that we suffer through. And what's good about Ecclesiastes is we read it and it's a really depressing book and we're like, yeah, that's exactly the way life is and it's easy to get bitter. 
Or we can realize that we have a God who has suffered through the exact same things that we have and who came out on the other side, and we have hope because of that. So this may have not have been the most encouraging sermon series for everybody, but I hope that it gave us a stage where the love of Jesus and the light of Jesus and the reason that he came is something that shines even more brilliantly on us. Um, we're going to come and we're going to sing a couple songs, and then we'll be good to go.